of course, we are so lucky to be joined uh, tonight by Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht, who are the co-directors of the film. Um, you'll also, of course, recognize Jim as one of the subjects of Crip Camp as well. Jim, I'd like to start with you. I mean, obviously, you were a camper at Jeanette quite a few years ago now, we could say. Um, had you been thinking, and you've been working in theater and working in film, had you been thinking that your story or the story of the camp might make a good film? Or when did that sort of idea come to you? Yeah, I've been uh, mixing documentaries for about 25 years now. And, uh, and what I wasn't seeing was exactly the kind of film as somebody with a disability that I kind of wanted to see, which was this kind of view of our lives um, from the inside, as opposed to people kind of observing us from on, on high. Um, and I, I started getting more and more kind of politically uh, active about 10 years ago. I've been really busy with my career. And I thought that there was a story about these people from Camp Jeanette moving out to the Bay Area. And that, you know, what motivated them? What was that all about? And, um, and fortunately, um, Nicole and I had uh, gotten together for, um, for, for lunch one day after she was kind of wrapping up her last film, which was The Revolutionary Optimists. And I was pitching some ideas to her. And I kind of said, you know, what I'd really love is if there could be a documentary about my summer camp. And Nicole, enter Nicole. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when he mentioned this idea, did you think amazing? Well, it, when he very first mentioned it, I think I was being polite when he said, I've always wanted to see a film made about my summer camp. I was like, oh, really? Why? <laughs> because, I mean, most people have uh, really, really, really fond memories uh, of their summer camp, or many people do, and they're very attached to that. Um, but I did ask why, um, and I'm really glad I did because Jim really um, blew things apart for me in his answer. I mean, just his description of Jeanette as this ramshackle hippie utopia where kids were finding themselves. And, you know, I, I remember in that conversation, he said, you have to understand at that point in time, society thought it would have been perfectly fine if we had ended up living with our parents until we grew up and then sitting on the back porch for the rest of our life and that really opened my eyes and then imagining the contrast of kids tumbling off a bus and finding themselves you know in, in a land of, of freedom um, it seemed cinematically like something that could really capture the imagination and really um, do a lot of really great stereotype busting because even just Jim's description was dismissing stereotypes that I realized I was holding in my mind um, but it wasn't really until later when we started exploring Jim's thesis that there was something about that, you know, profound experience of liberation that people experienced at Camp Jeanette and the exodus out to California and people getting involved in the disability rights movement, which I was woefully ignorant of. And we started exploring especially the trajectory of Judy Human's story that, um, that the kind of shape and arc of the film started to emerge. And Nicole, from the get-go, I think I read that you didn't want to be the only director of this, especially as an able-bodied person. You want somebody to help you tell it from the inside. So obviously you had worked with Jim as a sound mixer. 
But how did you convince him to co-direct with you? Or Jim, if you want to jump in of why that was interesting for you to do. It wasn't too hard to convince you, <laughs> as yeah. I recall. <laughs> we were excited about the idea, you know, I mean, we, it, it did it did occur to me that what was special about the story was that Jim was telling it, you know, and Jim's perspective and Jim's point of view. And we'd always had a really amazing time working together and talking about things and analyzing, you know, the other films Jim was mixing, plus, you know, the films that I was bringing to him to mix. So I was excited about the possible, you know, creative collaboration, but also I was really excited about helping Jim realize that vision that he was holding of what would a film be like if it was made, you know, a, a story about the disability community was made by the disability community and the story was told from a insider perspective. I, uh, I just wanted Nicole to make the film hmm. and I would be a producer on the film. And, but when she uh, asked me, I think she said, I think we should write this together. I, you know, I was, I, yeah, sure, that'd be really wonderful. But it was unexpected and um, and it turned out to be such a really wonderful, wonderful decision. Hmm. And just as, as creators working together, obviously, you know, you've got a BAFTA audience here with uh, quite a few filmmakers in the room. Um, how did you complement each other as co-directors and how, I guess, how logistically did you work together? And you know, were there times when you disagreed about the direction you wanted a certain scene to go in? And how did you resolve those co-directing tensions or collaborations? Uh, well, I've never directed a film before. And so I really, um, so, but I had all this lived experience as somebody with a disability. And I think that we just, you know, kind of drew upon what our strengths were. Um, and it's not like I didn't understand film, but I had never been through this process, which is, uh, you know, uh, which is quite daunting actually. <laughs> I'm sure you remember, I know, I know your members know this, but I, here I was, this guy was just, yeah, getting the tracks in and we're spotting the film and we're on it for maybe three or four weeks and then, and we've been working on this film for five years. Which is actually the, the length of time that I typically spend on it on an independent, you know, feature length documentary. Um, and so that wasn't a surprise to me. And I think, you know, what was so wonderful was that I had that belief in sort of the art and craft of documentary that if we kind of held out these large aspirations for the film, we would somehow eventually fulfill them. And if we assembled a team of incredible editors and if we worked well collaboratively, that it would eventually come together. And Jim had the um, you know personal passion, um, not only to make this film and make it really extraordinary, but also to, um, work a lot to kind of shift the industry as a director with a disability, which was kind of a secondary goal of ours because we knew that by sort of getting into the pitch meetings and the, and the rooms and the institutes and the labs and everything that, um, that we hoped we would find ourselves in, we would be um, you know, changing the industry just by having um, a person with a disability in the director's seat at the table. Um, and uh, 
So I think, it, you know, we, the tension was often times around uh, that really difficult space that Jim had to be in as a person who was also a character in the film and also it was his personal story. And, um, and then the kind of like uh, role for that story within the larger narrative. I think it was not so much that we disagreed about it, but it was just very hard, you know, as very, um, very tricky and also very uh, emotional and sensitive for Jim to be exposing him, his, you know, his inner life and his inner dialogue in the way that he did and, um, and trying to find out where his narrative was most powerfully interwoven with the story of the movement and the story of the other characters in the film. What yeah. we, uh, Sorry. I, I was gonna say that I think that what we, we had in the editing room and that we've had all along is that there's a great deal of trust between the two of us and that I felt like I could be as honest about what I was talking about in my own life and I could reveal as, as much as I wanted to. And that in the long run, nothing was gonna be in there that I all of a sudden maybe felt uncomfortable about, but also knowing that, you know, it's not the life and times of Jim LeBrecht and that, you know, that Nicole is, you know, um, and everybody else really knew how to kind of really craft the, the story the way they did. I mean, one thing I found fascinating is I, I had heard about the film um, and I knew the title and I thought it was going to be mostly about Camp Jeanette. Um, and it's about so much more, obviously. It's about people's personal stories who were campers and counselors, but you also tackle pretty much the beginnings and some of the key moments in the disability rights movement. So how, how much did you know that you wanted to include camp as the sort of genesis of some of that and balancing all of this in one feature film and it doesn't feel overwhelming the way you've done it so hats off to you for making this very digestible and a very entertaining watch but it's covering so much i mean we could have just had a biopic of jim or one of judy um so how did you both juggle all the stories you were trying to tell in one film? Well, you know, initially, we, we always knew that the film we wanted to tell should have the camp at its core and at its heart, and that that would be, um, that would be the foundational premise of the film, was this idea of people coming together and creating community. Um, for the first time, people had mostly been isolated. You know, oftentimes, if if you have a disability you're the only person in your family with a disability so that feeling of kind of coming together and then the the generative um, power of that um, to spark the movement was was always at the core but when we first started uh, working on the project uh, we'd even kind of written you know two or three page treatments of the story before we found all the footage of the camp so it wasn't initially completely clear to us how were we going to viscerally bring people back into that world and um and jim had a uh, seen a, a tape that the people's video theater which was the hippie video crew that showed up at the camp that summer uh had cut together called crabs outbreak at camp janet for the handicapped <laughs> that played on manhattan cable television and kind of was floating around the community 
So we knew that, um, we didn't know the name of the group that had done that, but we knew that it existed. And Jim remembered that they had people in their name. And he also remembered that they had handed him a camera and strapped the old porta pack on the back of his wheelchair. And, then, and he said, you know, I think, I think I gave a tour of the camp. And I was like, you, <laughs> you did? Like you actually were shooting footage at the camp, you know, of you and your friends. And so I just started, you know, looking around online every night. Um, I was working on another project and I would stay up late kind of looking and looking and looking. And finally somebody um, added to this video archive that I had been looking at, I believe it was at NYU, an early video kind of activist magazine. And in the back of that, there was a little ad for that crab tape and it said the People's Video Theater. So then I knew who they were and then I could find the names of the members and I tracked one guy down in Arizona or something and he said, no, I don't have anything but you should try this other guy. And I found Howard Gutstadt and he was working at a hippie bookstore in um, San Francisco, or actually he wasn't working there. He was on the board of the bookstore. And the bookstore said, well, we're sorry we can't give you his contact information, but if you want to leave a note here, you know, at the next board meeting, we'll hand it to him. And if he's interested, maybe he'll contact you. And like a month and a half later, <laughs> Jim and I were literally sitting there working on the film. And at that point we had thought maybe we would do recreations and cast young actors with disabilities to, to try to bring the camp back to life. And this email pops in and Howard is like a few miles away from us, has five and a half hours of, footage that he's mid-digitizing uh, at the Bay Area Video Coalition. And so we worked with him to get the rest of the footage transferred and we just got this hard drive. And once we saw that immersive, powerful video, then um, the structure of the film started to become more apparent to us because we saw that we could actually bring people into the camp experience themselves and show, we hoped that we could show sort of across the first act of the film, that kind of coming together and creating community and then follow the strands of it out. And we really resisted letting people know much more than just, you know, that one throwaway line at the beginning about this camp changed the world and nobody knows the story. We didn't want people to know where it was going because we wanted the structure of the film to be like this stone thrown in the water and you just feel the ripples coming out and we knew there would be an emotional power in that and kind of seeing across time how the seeds of something can can grow and how a movement can be formed and jim did you have your own personal photos from from that time or you know family albums and things like that to add in uh i'm kind of hiding all the boxes in my home office <laughs> that I've, you know, kind of drug in from the garage and such. And um, <clears throat> so indeed, there were um, a lot of photographs. Um, my friend Doug Jensen had shot a lot of photographs of me in college. We met in, in 1975 and throughout my, our, our friendship over the years. And, uh, and then those color home uh, movies my father shot. I mean, you know, it's just amazing. And, you know, my sister uh, would call and say, yeah, I found something in the basement. Let me send it to you. And it's like, it's another reel of eight millimeter. And uh, so it took, well, as you can see why the number of boxes, it took me a while to dig everything out of the archive. <laughs> 
Been... Other other old campers or counselors. Did anybody? Did you have drawn any other sort of personal archives from Genetians or, or other people? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Shelley Coy, one of the counselors, had um, a, a, a box of slides, black and white slides that, <clears throat> excuse me, you see a lot of in the film. And those were shot over the course of a couple of summers uh, by this guy, Steve Heinsbaum. So he had that, and he also had uh, a number of reels, eight millimeter, uh, that was shot around the same time, like that footage you see of the campers coming off the bus at the beginning that, I guess that summer that uh, they had hoped to make a fundraising uh, film uh, about the camp. So they were showing everyday life at the camp. So uh, on top of that, Bruce Berger, who uh, uh, is the nephew of Honora, who was um, one of the founders of the camp as we get started as a camp for folks with disabilities, he had a bunch of reels. And so we spent a lot of time transferring things over at this great house in San Francisco called, called Mouvette. And um, it was just amazing to put it on the flatbed and look at it. And I'm like, you know, um, but uh, when we saw it transferred, it was like, oh my gosh, A, the footage looked really held up over the years, but that look at, look at what we're seeing here. We, we could tell a story with this. And what about the footage from the sit-in era? Was that um, easier to find archive footage for that because news crews had, had been there or was that still quite a, a hunt for some of that? That was a crazy hunt. I mean, one of the things that was really lucky was that we had, you know, a budget to employ archival researchers and this incredible um, associate producer, Lauren Schwartzman, who worked with us and people, you know, the, the group that we worked with, um, Jen Petroselli and Rachel Antel, they have a company called um, Sub-Basement Archival. Because um, we all went to this um, same film school where the film department is in the sub-basement. Um, and they're amazing researchers. And we just, you know, looked and looked and looked and looked. Because the thing is, is that, you know, yes, news crews did document some of these things, but they weren't, this history wasn't considered top of the line important. So making sure it was there, that kind of process that normally happens, which is that every few years people go back and ask for the footage. And so, you know, the archivists know that it's there or they've made a good copy of it or they've, they've up-resed it or whatever that wasn't happening to this history. This history was sinking down kind of to the bottom. And so uh, Evan White, who's a character in the film, he's the news reporter that follows uh, the activists to Washington, D.C., the entire archive of the news station he worked for in California um, was moved off site to some kind of military base and eventually the entire thing caught fire and there was none of it left. And so because it had gone national, which is one of the stories we tell in the film, um, ABC did have a couple of reels of it, but somehow for years when we were looking that wasn't showing up. And then I think, you know, as as people are making more and more of their databases searchable, all of a sudden that popped up, which was really exciting. And then um, we found other fragments of it in boxes that had been given by people who maybe had been working on a video, you know, 20 years ago about this having happened. And so they had like an old three quarter inch tape where they had taken some of the original archive and 
spliced it in shot by shot. So instead of finding like the outtakes or even the produced newsreels of the time, we were finding like a shot here and a shot there <laughs> and then having to piece them back together. So um, it really was like a jigsaw puzzle. And we had some incredible editors, Mary Lampson and Eileen Meyer and Andy Gersh. Um, and they just did amazing work taking these tiny little fragments and piecing them together, not only just to kind of create a scene or tell a story, but the to kind of live up to the bar that had been set by the immersive quality of the people's video theater footage. In some of our earlier cuts, um, when those scenes weren't quite as immersive, it really sort of had this problem of feeling kind of rather than like, now you're following your friends from camp through history, it felt more like, here's the friends part and here's the history part. And, um, and so having that kind of um, stylistic consistency throughout was a real feat. Uh, we do have a question from the audience. So thank you, Albina, for your question. Um, and it's just asking how you met the pair of you. Um, we mentioned that Jim had sound mixed some of your work, but is that how you met uh, through work or did you have mutual friends? Um, I, uh, we met um, just because I was on the, what was it, Sentence Home. So I've mixed three films for Nicole and um, that was about 15 some odd years ago. But um, my, I started this company in Ber Berkeley and uh, Berkeley Sound Artist was a good name for it. Um, and um, I guess we had a good enough reputa reputation that she, you know, we, we talked and I wound up getting the gig. And it was, and um, you know, there's so many things about that film I still remember. So I think we had a really good connection um, you know, as artists and people. Mm -hmm. And Jim also did the sound design and mixing on a film that I co-directed called The Rape of Europa mm. um, about what happened to Europe's art in World War II. And that uh, sound design was just incredible. And, um, and the music, the whole, the, the sound in the film um, was really a joy to work on and experience. And we all, um, you know, I think became good friends on that on that sound mix. So it's, yeah, it's been a long collaboration and the Bay Area is a, a great kind of film community. So we see each other and, and get together outside of, outside of work too. Do you have any plans to work together again? Obviously you're working very hard promoting the film together right now, but um, could you collaborate on more work in the future? I think so, yeah. Right now we're kind of having these fun exploratory conversations about, um, you know, scripted things that could come out of this project and, um, and we'll see where it goes. There's a lot of stories that um, were either just germane to the film or we didn't have any footage, but in the regards to the recollections of a lot of the people that are in the film and some of my experiences, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really good stories there that could really uh, be really compelling. Um, and did you encounter any Janetians who were wary of the film being made or was everybody universally supportive of the idea? I think everybody was really excited about it. And a lot of folks uh, from the camp um, 
you know, even after almost 50 years, there's probably about 50 people on a email chain. So it wasn't that hard to kind of get to the group. And we wanted getting photographs from uh, people in Israel and, you know, all over the, all over the, the country um, contributing it. And um, it's an incredibly uh, kind of tight group of people. You know, we just, folks just stayed, stayed in contact over the years. So, but, you know, everybody was pretty, it was like, yeah, you know, you know, to an extent, who doesn't want their summer camp experience to be part of a film? So it's been but really I think You, Jim, it was, a lot of it had to do with it being you. People were really excited to talk to you, you know? I mean, I think, what, you know, just to go back to an earlier question about why was it so important from my point of view that Jim and I did this together. Um, I thought a lot about the times of Harvey Milk actually, which was the film that made me want to become a filmmaker. And I think one of the beautiful things about that film is you have, it has this very intimate sense of a community telling its history to each other, you know? Um, it feels very insider and very intimate. And, um, and I thought that it would be wonderful if this film had a similar kind of spirit. And I think we saw that over and over again, is that people trusted that, that the community was gonna be portrayed in the right way, that we weren't gonna go down, you know, bad rabbit holes of inspiration porn or, you know, kind of tragedy tropes and the things that you typically see in the media. And, um, and also there's just this sort of like wonderful informal feeling to, um, to a lot of the, interviews and I just highly doubt that if I had you know shown up with another crew that um, you know Denise and Neil would have been quite as uh, ribald and hilarious and <laughs> and informal as they were so so yeah I think that 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 was a lot of it it was just like and it was fun they were everybody just reminiscing with each other I think everybody had a great time even for uh, for me um, because we did an interview with me um, it was important that uh, it was Nicole's idea that off camera that Denise Jacobson was in the room and I was really talking to her. And it really grounded me um, and also opened things up. It's kind of like, again, it's like, well, you understand, you understand. And so just having a sense of, uh, it really kept me, it kept me really honest and, um, I didn't really feel like I had, it, it just made it much more fluid. Um, we've got a few more questions coming in, which is great. So keep them coming. Um, one from Jim that I think um, follows right on from what you were saying. Um, one from a Jim to you, Jim. Uh, were there any points in making the film where you felt you struggled to have any distance at all or perspective about the subject? Um, I mean, we explored certain subjects that wound up not being really that important for the film. Um, in my childhood, uh, I had a parent that was an alcoholic and that made things a bit difficult and such. Um, but um, I, but I, 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 mean, I think it was also tough kind of really kind of accessing certain memories. And that in fact, it was this, I remember we uh, drove back from um, 
I, we had had an interview with Dr. Bronston, the doctor from Willowbrook. And I had said some things in the interview and I realized, you know, I don't think I was being quite honest there. Um, and because I was struggling about how I felt different from the people that you could see in Willowbrook. And I was struggling with really trying to get to how I felt about uh, about uh, myself in the community. So it, it just, but it was it was good to kind of call Nicole. I, I, I'm having a hard time being really specific here and I'm, I apologize, but I think it was important for me to call Nicole and said, you know, I don't think that, that what I said there was really quite accurate. And this is how I really feel. Um, Which was really became, it helped us, I think, in developing your storyline because what you were talking about was, um, you know, I think Dr. Bronston had assumed in the interview that at that time that you were at camp, you knew that kids with spina bifida could have ended up in Willowbrook. And it was, and I think you had nodded or something in the interview. I might, I might be misremembering too, but I think that late you wanted to tell me that you, you didn't until that, until during that interview, you saw a photograph of a child with spina bifida um, in Willowbrook, that that hadn't been apparent to you. And, and I think one of the things that I love about your story is that complexity of you going off to college and kind of feeling like you had to fit into an able-bodied world that wasn't built for you. And then experiencing that kind of freedom of coming back into the community later on in your life. And, and, um, and, you know, it took a while to, to get to all of that. And, um, because it's not, it's not easy stuff. I mean, I think my survival was really based on trying to fit in and pass and well Jim how do you what do you mean pass you mean you're sitting in a wheelchair you know but yet that was kind of the sense was that you know to be successful that I had to make it in the you know in the real world so to speak and um, that exploration was really uh, took a lot of you know real honesty on my part about how I really felt um, but uh, we got to the story. Um, you've already spoken about, you know, how, how little we see of disabled people on screen in any form, whether that's, you know, narrative fiction or documentary. And I was curious uh, what the response was like when you sort of took this film out to market, so to speak, to get money to make it, to get the right producers. Um, I'm very curious to know when uh, the Obamas came on board, for instance. Uh, when did Netflix come on board? Was it a sort of uphill battle to get the ball rolling on the film? It wasn't as uphill as, as we thought it was going to be. Um, I mean, we knew, you know, we knew that a lot of people know and love Jim in the industry. So we, and I remember at one point when we were developing the pitch, Jim, there we were looking at funds that were you know around diversity that would include disability and then we were looking at uh funds for women filmmakers and jim said oh my god i'm disabled you're a woman there's nothing we can't accomplish <laughs> 
so we we felt like there would be some interest in the kind of like diverse perspectives that we were bringing to the table but um you know we cut this early trailer um and it had it featured that footage of jim tumbling down the stairs as a toddler and um and every single pitch meeting we went to everyone we showed it to people just responded i think there was something about the combination of the joy in that footage and the joy in the camp footage that followed uh, and the feeling that there was this untold civil rights story that people didn't know about um, that that really did appeal to people so um, we we were getting really positive response really early on and and we were kind of in that position of then having to make a film that lived up to our trailer <laughs> which is you know not the worst position to be in um, and then we had, you know, kind of midway along, uh, kind of in our early fundraising, um, we recognized that we should try to get an executive producer on board. And, um, and I had had the good fortune to spend some time in Oxford um, at the school um, forum on social entrepreneurship with Howard Gertler, who um, I know is a longtime friend of yours. And, is fabulous and um, and I was intrigued because he had given a talk on movement storytelling and um, which I think not everybody really understands how to do you know how to tell stories that bring to life the feeling of a collective or a movement or group of people um, seeking to make change and also Howard um, you know has worked on amazing scripted projects like short bus and he even worked on what hot American summer so um, it seemed like this perfect, perfect combination and, and luckily he was interested. And then it was Howard who, when he read about Higher Ground, um, had the brilliant idea that they might be interested. Higher Ground is the Obama's production company with Netflix. And um, he, you know, Judy had worked um, in the Obama administration at the State Department. Uh, and that was kind of the genesis of the idea. But then the more we thought about it, we were like, well, there's grassroots organizing, there's young people coming together to change the world. It's a bipartisan story. We thought there were kind of values that the film might share in common with the Obamas. And so we were able to get that killer trailer um, to Priya Swami Nathan, who had just been brought on board to run Higher Ground. And she, um, you know, called us up and said, well, you guys have done something because I, I watched that and then I watched it again and again. And she um, she spent time with us in the edit room and uh, we all really felt strongly that we shared a vision for what the film could, could be and do in the world. And uh, right after that meeting, she called up and said, we'd love to partner with you on the project. And um, the president and Mrs. Obama feel the same way, which we still can't believe we even get to say. <laughs> but that was early on. That was like an assembly stage. So, and the other thing she said is, we're going to roll up our sleeves and make this film with you. And they really did. They really did, um, you know, uh, play a, a very active editorial role. Do you get notes from Barack? I mean, what, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> we did. We got several sets of notes um, from the president and Mrs. Obama uh, through Priya. And um, yeah, they were great. They were great notes, questions, you know, thoughts. Um, yeah, we're, we were very lucky. It's quite the, uh, it, it's quite the feeling, oh my gosh, you know, President and Mrs. Obama have watched the cut of our film. You know, they know who <laughs> we are. 
They know who you are. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And at what point did Netflix come on board? Kind of around the same time. They were sort of like parallel conversations. We had actually already started talking with Netflix um, when we started the conversation with Higher Ground. So um, yeah, maybe like a few weeks beforehand. Because Netflix and Higher Ground have a, a at least some sort of loose deal in place, but I don't imagine that Netflix takes everything. They do. I don't know. Maybe that's a different conversation, but. Um, I mean, they, yeah, they're, they, they're, they're working with Netflix yeah. now. So, yeah. Great. Um, you know, you've mentioned, I think one really important thing about this film is just seeing disabled people on screen um, and as you said, it's not a sort of Hallmark channel, look how inspiring this is. I mean, there are some very inspiring people in the film, but it's got kind of a rock and roll, punk rock attitude as well. So, I mean, how do you tell an inspiring story without letting it become treacly? Well, I mean, you can be inspiring and, and be joyful at the same time. And you can, uh, and I think the amazing things that were captured, especially at the camp, were just, you're not seeing people with disabilities normally just being teenagers or young adults. You just don't see them kind of just having a, a good time. It's always the story about, you know, the wheelchair basketball team or the, you know, the person that's climbing the mountain with their index fingers or something. It's just... This was just really, just very much down to earth, um, natural uh, footage um, at a summer camp for the disabled run by hippies in the early 70s. I mean, you know, indeed, some of this, you know, who does an encounter session? <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, who would do an encounter session at a summer camp in general? But there you are you know, in that scene where people are talking about Nancy Rosenblum. And, and I really dig you, Nancy, and, and my 15-year-old, well, I guess you're kind of good, nice, yeah. You know, I still kind of, I kind of go like this every time that part of the film goes by. But, you know, we did work really hard to give it a punk rock vibe, um, which was, you know, inspired a lot by Steve Hoffman. Um, he's the character who translates for Nancy and then uh, comes out to San Francisco and, um, you know, has that incredible strip performance um, and in a punk club in San Francisco and then becomes a rad dad. Um, and, uh, and there was, I mean, people have asked us, like, what did you leave on the cutting room floor? One thing we did leave on the cutting room floor is this incredible story Steve tells about going on the subway and every time he would go on the subway he would have to do what Jim describes doing when he went to that Martin Luther King um, birthday celebration where he would have to pull his chair up behind him and Steve was ro roaming around New York City and would frequently get stopped by the police and they would ask him for his ID because they didn't think it was appropriate that a person with a disability was out by themselves and, um, and he would show them his um, university ID and he would say, um, you know, I, I feel like telling them, does it bother you that I'm more educated than you are? <laughs> and just had this very, very 
you know, badass punk rock attitude all the way through life that really is inspiring. And also it's how change gets made, you know, and Judy is very punk rock too. And in the way that Judy won't ever say what you want to hear, she always calls it like it is, you know, and that, and you, you, you see in the film how that attitude is responsible for changing the world. And so we really wanted the film to always have that as kind of a true North. And so we actually even like wrote, wrote on a little sticky note, the spirit of Steve and put it on the editing computer. And, uh, and we were very mindful in our um, test screenings of uh, responses that were kind of like, oh, you know, are kind of like um, responses to where even if something didn't seem trickly to us, it was triggering that kind of inspiration porn part of people's brain. Um, because uh, people I think have these deeply ingrained kind of programmed ways of responding to disability. And so um, we just fought against that as hard as we could. Rock and roll. Thank you for fighting that. Um, <laughs> I'd love to talk about the audience response because you had your world premiere at Sundance and you won an audience award there. I think that says quite a lot. Um, and then obviously we're in very strange times right now. People cannot go to the cinema. Um, but people can watch Netflix and a lot of people I know are talking about this film being on Netflix. So, I mean, do you hear directly from audience members with the Netflix screening or what have you gotten back from any audience so far? Um, certainly, um, it was unusual to, you know, the, the other day I go on Facebook and it's like 33 friend requests. <laughs> it's like, so um, I think it's been really, you know, positive. We are certainly hearing from people on social media um, and um, through the, our website also. Um, and that so much of what I'm also just reading on threads in Facebook is the sense that people are feeling really proud and prideful to be part of the community. And that, um, and this is one of the, we had many goals for the film, but I think one of the goals was that uh, we could reframe how people think about disability, but not just from the outside, but also from within the community. And, um, and so it's, it's really um, humbling and, and very satisfying to think that, you know, more people are feeling like, okay, I'm proud about this. You hear, we've heard many stories about when people, uh, people heard about Judy Human for the first time, how that changed the trajectory of really what they were wanting to do. That for them, um, Judy was just like this, for, as it was for me at 15, she lit a spark, she lit a fire in me to want to do this kind of work or an advocacy. I think there's also been this overwhelming kind of, um, feeling from the non-disabled audience of like, how could we have not known this? How, why didn't we know this story? Why didn't we know about Judy? You know, Judy's my new hero. <laughs> Give me more Judy. And, uh, and that's, um, it's gratifying, but it's also, I think, um, you know, we've, we've perceived like for Judy, for instance, it's also frustrating, you know? Um, and at Sundance, when she heard that over and over and over from people, um, 
why don't I know this story? Why didn't I know there was a disability rights movement? She ended up often saying to people, you should ask yourself that question, you know? Um, so, but yeah, the, the, the response has been great. And I've been really um, heartened by the number of young people who seem to be just really enjoying it and getting a lot out of it and, um, and taking inspiration from it. Great. And um, this kind of leads in, we've got a, a final question from somebody in the audience who is going to remain anonymous, but they wanted to know what central message or theme would you want anybody in the audience who is deaf or has a disability to take away from the film? I think that even beyond that, I think the general message is that there is power and comfort in community. And that you need to find those folks or you need to start your own campfire that people will be drawn to, to um, experience each other's um, truths. And um, that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, there's people out there and if you've not identified, um, it's probably because of the stigma that's been put on you by the outside world, but that, um, you know, find your tribe is what I, even people would say, you know, gee, how do I get into the business, Jim? And it's like, find other people who are trying to do what you're doing. Go out there and just start doing things and see, you know, and, you know, build it yourself. We had to build this ourselves. No one was going to give it to us. And Nicole, anything to add to that about what you would hope a message the audience takes away? I mean, Jim, Jim really said it. I, I think it's that, that feeling, for me, it goes back to that line Corbett says in the film of, you know, we were witnessing each other's truths. We were giving each other, I see you and I believe you. And I feel like um, that is such a profound message for our time. Um, for the time that we're in. It's, it's, we are being so encouraged um, in so many ways, I think, to not do that and to kind of um, hide in our own identity groups, um, to feel embattled, to feel like there's a scarcity of resources and all of that. But I think it's that when you look at the 504, well, when you look at the community that was formed at Camp Jeanette across different disabilities and, and between campers and counselors and you know, non-disabled and, and disabled people. And then when you look at the 504 and the community that was that was forged across so many different groups that helped each other um, to try to create the world that they wanted to live in. Um, I feel like those lessons are such profound lessons for all of us, especially right now. And we should mention that you have a website, which is cripcamp.com, is that correct? So yes. people who are looking to learn more about the film or the, you know, how they can pitch in or learn more, that would be a good place to start, I guess? Yes. Yeah, there's actually, there's a little drop down menu on that website and you can, uh, if you're interested in getting uh, educational materials that we'll be developing to go along with the film or hosting a screening or watch party, virtual watch party, there's, um, there are kind of uh, discussion guides and various things that we've put together. So. Um, please definitely try to get in touch with us that way. It would be great if anybody's interested in doing more with the film. 
Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.